Cuisine Bites with Kelly Brett. Everything you'll ever need to know about food. Brought to you by Visa Wellington on a Plate. Great to have you with me for this episode of Cuisine Bites where we take a look behind the scenes of one of New Zealand's most effective food festivals and celebrations of our hospitality industry. Visa Wellington on a Plate rolls out every year in beautiful Wellington with its vibrant and cutting-edge food and drink scene and this year has seen it move from its usual August schedule to October. Now, the events industry in general has taken a huge bashing as a result of the pandemic. So in a post-COVID world, what will this month-long festival bring to the table with regards to tourism, economic development and the telling of the all-important New Zealand food story? We realised, I think, just so quickly how important it was for Welling on a Plate, or Visa Welling on a Plate, to happen for the industry to get them back on their feet. And the industry is so keen to see it happen for their recovery. So it was kind of like a coalition of the willing. We've just got to make this happen because this is going to be the thing that kind of gets the hospitality set to moving again. Sarah Meekle, Chief Executive of the Wellington Culinary Events Trust and Visa Wellington on a Plate Program Manager Beth Brash will join us in just a tick. But a few little crispy bits for you first. Crispy. Now this is pretty cool. Award-winning Kiwi winery Love Block is leading the charge in wine innovation with a Sauvignon Blanc that's using green tea as a natural preservative in replacement of sulphur, the traditional preservative used in wine. I asked Erica Crawford of Love Block Wines where the idea of replacing sulphur with powdered tea had come from. So to make organic wine, you have to have low sulphur levels. There's a specific level that it's got to be below, which means that... You know, the, the wine is vulnerable to the presence of oxygen in that it may possibly spoil. And flavours aren't protected the way they are in the presence of sulphur. So it really started from there in order to try to protect the wine more and to protect those flavours that would otherwise be unprotected at that stage. And then, of course, also, I've been aware that the South Africans have been looking at rooibos tea and honeybush tea for a, for a little while and um, been following them and talking to them um, with great interest as well. So it's really interesting what's happening on this whole front. And so the benefits of using the powdered tea rather than sulphur, how far do they extend? Well, of course, it protects the wine more from the, in the first instance mm. because that's an interest. Secondly, our, our colleagues in retail and restaurants definitely reporting uh, more requests and demands for sulfur-free wine or low sulfur wine. So that's just, it's really consumer-driven. Mm. And, and, and so it's really just extending our organic approach um, a little bit further. And are the flavours of the green tea coming through in the finished wine? Not that you can see. The flavours are different if you compare the two. You know, it's definitely still Sauvignon Blanc. It smells like Sauvignon Blanc, tastes like Sauvignon Blanc, is Sauvignon Blanc. But the difference that we note is that the, there's some exotic flavours that are emerging that either is hidden or masked by sulphur um, that are popping up, things like um, saffron and some fennel. And so there's, there's some additional flavours that we don't ordinarily see in Sauvignon Blanc and the wine tends to be more soft and more textured. It definitely gives you um, more access to some of the hidden flavours, yes. Mm. And uh, is Love Block the first winemaker to experiment using green tea in New Zealand? Certainly in New Zealand, um, as far as we know in the world as well. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, no one has reported anything. 
you know, making a finished wine with only using green tea. So we're also looking at extending and, and testing other um, tannins like this rooibos tea and the honeybush tea to see which is really the best one that one provides most protection and two has no flavor transfer. So watch the space for some more experimentation. Crispy bits. I love that. New Zealand punching above its weight again with regards to food and beverage innovation. Green tea is of course known for its antioxidant properties, something that's being rediscovered and explored in various fields such as medicine and beauty and now as a new innovation in winemaking being used as a natural antioxidant to preserve Love Block's 2019 Tea Sauvignon Blanc. New Zealand flavour. Josh Emmett is a New Zealand chef who needs no introduction with a career that's included working at the Savoy and Claridge's, two legendary London institutions, and having established Queenstown's two-headed restaurant Rata and nationwide casual eateries Madam Wu and Hawker and Roll. Josh and his wife Helen are now establishing permanent roots in Auckland with the opening of Onslow on October 15th in the highly anticipated residential development The International at Nine Princes Street. I asked Josh how they're both feeling about finally opening their own restaurant in Auckland. Brilliant. I mean, in essence, brilliant, although we all know what 2020's brought us. So um, it's been an extremely difficult year. Um, we, we signed on the site um, 18 months ago, which is probably what a lot of pe- people don't realise. But it's been delayed and we've been on this a long time. But, you know, we're really excited and, with, and a little bit nervous. And at the end of the day, you've just got to keep going forward, haven't you? You can't just freeze and stop. Yeah, 100%. We, we, we've waited and waited. We are trying to probably hit between levels. Uh, you know, um, I'm not, it's a really difficult time for the restaurant industry and the hospitality industry. We all know that. Um, I am not hugely concerned about the long term um, issue with, with, you know, people wanting to dine at restaurants. I mean, life will one day hopefully return to normal, but the short term is really, really difficult. Why the name Onslow? A couple of reasons. Um, you know, it's, it's a, a restaurant that is um, really between Helen and I. Um, so it's a, just contributions from both. Um, Helen's parents met in Onslow Gardens in London. Um, her father had an office there. Uh, the original hotel on the site was built in the late 1880s and was um, uh, uh, called the Grand Hotel. Um, it was um, built to receive um, the Earl and Countess of Onslow, who um, were coming down from England here, and then he went down to be, I think, um, Governor General in, in Wellington. So that's oh. enough. And tell me a little bit about what, what, what can we expect it to look like, because you're in such a beautiful spot there, so I'm, I'm thinking it's going to be pretty cool. It's it's really gorgeous. It's it's quite um, I, I would say it's quite sophisticated. It's it's um, we we we're going, you know, the restaurants that I love in London and 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 um, in Europe and 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 are quite old school. Um, and the places that I really always want to go back to, um, we are you know um, definitely not going down the um, sort of rustic. Um, fast casual instant gratification route we are going down the old school a little bit classy what i love about restaurants you know the restaurants that have survived over the last you know 100 years and 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 are the ones that you constantly keep going back to so a little bit old world and a little bit classy and i'm hearing the description using the words refined dining rather than fine dining 
Yeah. Is there a difference? I think there is a difference. We, we're not, uh, not definitely not overcomplicated on the plate. Um, you know, a, a lot of attention to detail, like with anything, and I think that comes from, um, you know, when you again going back to why I love restaurants and and uh, you know I love going out and eating in noisy, bustling um, places, and I've you know built restaurants like that myself. Um, but I find people these days are also wanting something that is you know, a little bit of a treat. Um, they want to feel a little bit pampered. They do want a little bit of theatre. They do want an experience. They want a little bit of peace and quiet sometimes as well. And not that it's going to be, definitely not going to be quiet in here because I, I love a noisy restaurant. That's what we thrive on. But it, it, it just needs to be um, very welcoming. Do you run the risk when you do that, though, that you'll become a special occasion restaurant? No, definitely not. And I think um, the price point won't reflect that. Um, yeah, it's definitely not fine dining. So, um, and we, we, we steer quite clear of that, but it has to be quite comforting. Mm. I think, you know, you go back to think of places, you know, Gramercy Tavern and, and restaurants that like that that I know and love in, in New York or other places that I love in London. And we sort of reference that more than anything. No more degustations? No, definitely not. I haven't done tasty menus for quite a few years, actually. So I was no going to say, I don't think you're really a deg chef, are you? I have done them for years, and then I just got to the point where I was like, you know what, I, I, I sort of, I, I like eating like that, but I, you know, I always, we, probably like you, I go and create my own degustations anyway, because I go and look at a menu and I want to eat everything on it, and I just <laughs> and pick and choose through everything. Um, and that's, you know, the same sort of thing as here. So we're going, again, a la carte. Um, trying to go on a really, um, trying to hit the right price point. Um, you know, we want people here uh, once, twice a week, not um, once every six months. Yeah, that's the problem with Degs, isn't it? The person that you're eating with is um, doing the same menu and there's no fun in that. You need to get as many things as possible on the table. No, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, uh, ordering and sharing and doing all that sort of thing. Can you tell me who you've got in the kitchen with you yet? Uh, yeah, I've got a guy um, uh, who you'll know, Glenn File. Um, oh. Been, he's been around a long time, so Glenn and I have teamed up on this one. Um, I've sort of known him over the years and, and you know, always really loved everything he's he's cooked. Um, Terrific chef, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's a great guy. So um, Some great young Kiwi chefs who have come back from overseas. One young guy, you know, had just gone on his OE to France and that got cut short, so he had to just come back. You know, another guy's just come back from Melbourne. You know, we we're sort of reaching far and wide, trying to see who's out there and who's returning back to New Zealand. Um, I had, had a really great girl um, who um, hopefully I can still get down here from, who worked with me originally in New York. Um, she's based in LA at the moment and, you know, she had her visa and had everything booked mm. and locked in and then, God, you know, yeah. never made it. But yeah. she'll, she'll get down here at some point as well, so. Yeah, eventually when things get back to normal. Well, congratulations to you and Helen, Josh. It's just amazing to see the two of you doing something together and we'll be all watching and stalking you on Instagram to see what those dishes are like once you get into experimental mode. Exactly. We're there. We're crafting. I'm doing that right <laughs> now in behind the scenes. And, and we've got some, you know, gorgeous food, um, which I'm really excited about, and, and, and a really gorgeous sort of style of service, I think, which is really exciting as well. Onslow is opening October 15th at 9 Princes Street in Auckland. Bit of a landmark address. And it's sounding like this summer a table on the west-facing terrace will be one of the city's must-do spots. For more info, onslow.nz. Crispy. And while we're speaking about New Zealand chefs and New Zealand flavour, I have a bit of news from me for you. 
As our food and drink story constantly evolves, it's fair to say that I spend a lot of time looking at plates of food, in particular chef's plates. So I thought, why not create a space that celebrates our New Zealand chefs and their food and gives us a snapshot of their great work and talent unfolding in professional kitchens right around the country? So if you'd like to have a look, head over to New Zealand Flavour on Instagram. That's NZ underscore flavour. Give us a follow if you'd like to stay updated and enjoy the food journey. Chefs, do tag New Zealand Flavour on your images. If you'd like to showcase your work, just tag NZ Flavour. Totally curated by me. There are no scores, no reviews, just a movable feast to hopefully inspire and unite. New Zealand Flavour. Visa Wellington on a plate has pretty much got all of your bases covered if eating and drinking is your favourite pastime and usually attracts huge crowds of food and drink lovers to Wellington every August. However, this year, the event has understandably had to be postponed until October. Now, back in March, Wellie on a Plate was hurtling full steam ahead with the usual fabulous focus on Burger Wellington, Dine Wellington and Cocktail Wellington, plus an exciting list of show-stopping international culinary heroes all set to hit Wellington for the month of August. The program was almost locked and loaded with its hundreds of stakeholders and multi-layers organised and almost ready to launch. You can only imagine how Sarah Meikle, the very clever person behind Welly on a Plate and the Chief Executive of the Wellington Culinary Events Trust was feeling as we went into Level 3. <laughs> um, kind of overwhelming disbelief, mm. I think, at the start. I mean, we were so close to launch. We... In fact, we had done all of our curation of the program and, in fact, the very next day we were supposed to be sending out emails to everybody confirming their participation in the festival um, and kind of locking you know, locking down everything. We'd just locked in our final international chef. I think we had 20 lined up and we were so excited because we had some amazing talent. And I remember having to send the emails to people saying, oh, we're just going to see what the next couple of months bring, you know, weeks bring, and just not knowing anything. But, you know, you've worked so hard, and then literally the rug is pulled out from underneath you. How much wine did you drink? <laughs> well, during the whole lockdown, quite a lot. I, I live alone, so <laughs> no one was watching. <laughs> So, so I, there were more bottles in the recycling bin than I probably need to admit. <laughs> that that sound when the bin hits the curb. Yeah. Like, it's yeah. really embarrassing, isn't it? When all of your neighbours have got this lovely sort of just sound of soft paper and yours goes clink, clink. Yeah. Well, you can barely pick it up. <laughs> Listen, first of all, before we go on to um, Willie on a Plate, congratulations on uh, during that time, that, that fraught, just nerve-wracking time, you jumped into Dine Wellie with your team and did a magnificent job in supporting local venues at a time when they needed Thank you, you. Yeah, in fact, actually, um, that little site that was pulled together in rapid pace at yours was so ridiculously successful. Mm. I mean, it's unbelievable. But, you know, it just goes to show, like, you know, right time, <laughs> right moment. And we were, yeah, it was fantastic. And um, we've been talking about sort of, you know, what's the life of that beyond all of this? Because I think there's an opportunity there. We just need some time to think about it. Yeah, yeah. I was actually looking at the website this morning and thinking exactly that. There must be a way that you can um, utilise that going forward because it's such mm. an immense amount of work and it would be shame to see it all disappear. Absolutely. Yeah. What were you thinking? You know, we, we, once you'd sort of realised, okay, things are going to change, were you thinking, okay, we're dead in the water, we can do this, what happened next? I think for the first couple of days, you know, because it was just that such moment of disbelief, I was a bit like that. I, I think this is, we're all over, Red Rover. And, 
Yeah, I remember just feeling um, very, you know, that feeling you get that you're so nervous about something, you kind of start shaking all over. Mm. I kind of had a few moments of that. Um, and not so much feeling sick, but I've not often in my life simply not known what to do. I think, yeah, the first few days, I think I was very much not in denial because it was pretty obvious what was happening, but just like, okay, what now? But um, I don't know what came over me, but I kind of about five days in probably, I just sort of woke up one morning and I was like, okay, nah, we've got to sort this out. You know, kind of pulled the team together. We were already meeting every day, you know, liberally to the sort of 10 o'clock catch up every day just to keep the team connected because that was just so important. You know, everyone felt very unsure about their own personal situation at that stage. And, you know, obviously it was very difficult for me to provide any kind of certainty because I didn't know what was happening and there was no certainty around the festival. And and so we actually, in that first month, we kind of went into hibernation a wee bit. Um, we kind of put out a message almost straight away to the industry just to say, hey, just put us at the bottom of your to-do list. We know you've got a hell of a lot of stuff going on and we are not your priority right now. We are going to rethink what we're going to do and come back to you. So as I say, woke up sort of five days into it thinking, okay, right, we need to make a plan. And it was quite amazing. I felt quite energized once I was busy kind of like coming up with the plan. Yeah. And and I think the team were as well. You know, at the same time, we did have to make some changes to the way the team operated because we weren't fully utilizing everybody and it, that was really hard you know I mean some people who had just been absolutely held held leather go you know going for it literally stopped in their tracks that was really the hardest part yeah I think you know once we kind of got our heads around the levels and certainly once we could see level three coming and there was light at the end of the tunnel that really put a sort of spring in our step and made us realize actually you know what we can do this and actually we can also deliver a festival if we're in level two at that point, we started thinking about sort of what the delay dates would be. So by the time we came out into where well, we were coming back to work, which was in sort of late May, June, we had a plan for for rolling out the festival in October. And of course, the focus had to change inward um, to domestic tourism Very and, much to, so. and to people much. Yes, I would think even people much sort of closer to Wellington, in case because at that stage you also wouldn't have known what the the bigger picture here was going to be. Yes, that's right. I mean, I think um, we certainly immediately, obviously, were talking to the restaurants here in Wellington who um, were doing international stuff. And, I mean, you know, they were under no illusion that obviously it was pretty unlikely that any international stuff was going to happen. Um, so that was that was a pretty easy conversation, mm. to be honest. Mm. Um, certainly beyond that, we were kind of thinking about, yes, what are, we, what are we going to be focusing on in terms of programming for this year? And actually, when we went, came back to the office and we kind of opened everything up again, we realised that that change could be quite dramatic. So, in fact, we actually opened up applications again, which we've never done before, so that people could either change, resubmit, or, you know, or give us something new for the festival programme because their thinking was changing at that yeah, point. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk to Beth about the festival programme in a minute. But, cool. But um, you've been applauded by many with regard to your ability to turn that event around. I mean, ABC News ran a story about what Wellington has achieved so quickly and, and actually mm. asked the question if Tasmania could take a leaf out of your book. So mm. is the success of Welly on a Plate the fact that it's spread across so many venues rather than being concentrated yep. in one venue or area as so many festivals? Definitely. The decentralised model is its success. In this instance, you know, I yep. think um, because we are spread out across so many venues, I think across the whole festival, I mean, there'd be, in terms of venues, I mean, there'd be well over 300, I think, um, when you look at some of the independent event venues. Mm. So, 
you know, we were quite aware that if we were at level two, of course, they've got that 100 person limit. So even thinking about sort of some of those events that are over that um, at level one, well, okay, at level two, what could we do? Could we split them? Could we run them across different sessions? You know, just so that we were still delivering the festival, but in a slightly modified way. Our hospital sector here in Wellington, you know, I've just become so good at the level two table service scenario. So Mm. I think we realised, I think, just so quickly how important it was for Wellington Plate, to visit Wellington Plate, to happen for the industry to get them back on their feet. And the industry is so keen to see it happen for their recovery. So it was kind of like a coalition of the willing. Mm. Like, we've just got to make this happen because this is going to be the thing that kind of gets the hospitality sector moving again. Yeah, and do you think in general that that's the a kind of strength of the hospital industry, their ability to adapt? Oh, absolutely. I mean, honestly, they are the world's best events organisers. They do them every day, and every event is different. <laughs> it's and, so true. You know, I think, and and they just they're just so good at thinking on their feet and problem solving. You know, they've got problems every day, gluten free, this, that, and everything else. They have to worry about. Yeah, yeah. Um, the real professionals are just they're incredible to watch they just yeah and nothing nothing phases them because they do they are problem solvers mm. I think that ability to to spread crowds out rather than concentrate might be the the new way forward in event designs mm. are there any mm. other learnings from this how do you feel about the future of large-scale events Look, we actually organise a large-scale event, and it's rolling. Um, it's rolling through in <laughs> November. So, um, I suppose. I mean, look, I, I think we kind of have to remember why people go to events, and events are social occasions, okay. and people, you know, do them with their friends. I mean, okay, there are the odd person who goes to, you know, Bevana or other event alone. Um, but for, for the most part, it's about groups of people getting together, and you know, humans are social by nature. So, I think people do them for entertainment. They do them for learning. Um, and, you know, they do them to now meet with their friends. So many people live alone. Uh, you know, big events aren't dead. I think big events just need to adapt. But I think it's about putting people at ease and making them sure that you are taking the steps that, that you need to take to make sure that they are safe. But there is also an element of personal responsibility in an event. And, um, you know, you, you certainly probably wouldn't expect to go to an event and have someone provide you with a face mask. You know, if you want to wear a face mask, you probably take it with you. Mm. So probably also a bit of an impediment at a drinking event. Um, <laughs> I just don't know if the wet mask will work very well. But um, there is no question this what we've all been through will fundamentally change the way people look at certain situations. But at the same time, I think there's an element of common sense that needs to prevail. Mm-hmm. What would have happened if um, Wellington on a plate had been cancelled, do you think? Um I would have been very sad. <laughs> um, well, that goes without I think saying. The industry would would have been very, very would be very sad. Um, um, and I, I do think that um, the the tales that we've heard, particularly around the world, of you know of significant impacts on the hospitality sector, um, would potentially become a reality. Mm. Customers, you know, are, are the lifeblood of hospitality businesses. So. Mm, mm. Can you guarantee hospital venues an increase in turnover if they participate? We've got research from previous years, which definitely indicates that if you participate, you do see an uplift in business. It doesn't drill down to the granular level of an individual business, but overall, you will see a pickup in business. 
But actually, and interestingly, if you do not participate in Visa Wellington on a plate, generally over the same period of time, you will also see an increase in business, but just not to the same level. Mm, because of the fact that it's, it's attracting such a huge crowd. Correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And because it's getting more people into the city. So one can expect that if they participate, they will see an uplift. Talk to me about Burger Welly. I heard over a quarter of a million burgers eaten in two weeks last year. I think it was even more than that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I kind of think if there was some sort of record that we could enter, we should enter it. <laughs> um, yeah, Burger Wellington, or as I often refer to it as the cult, <laughs> um, like it's it's an absolute runaway success. And I think its success lies in its simplicity um, in that, you know, a burger is – it's somewhat of a great equaliser because everybody can make a burger. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a fine dining restaurant or a cafe – you can make a great burger. And I think that's the fun of it is that, you know, you don't need to have a Michelin star chef in your kitchen to actually prove or be the deliverer of that experience. So, And, and these days and, everyone can eat a burger as well. And everyone can eat a burger, exactly. <laughs> and there's so many versions of a burger. And I mean, there's a lot of debate about, you know, if certain bread constitutes a bun. And um, yes. But, you know, I think that's the, the fantastic thing about it is that it just gets so many people so engaged. I mean, the number of spreadsheets we see, people have developed their own apps, they've, you know, um, <laughs> They've developed their own, you know, internal work competitions around it, <clears throat> all sorts of things. And I think, you know, that is what the heart of the festival is all about. It's about engaging people to get out of their offices and enjoy the hospitality sector. You know, it's just so heartening to see. And I just love that feeling walking down the street during the festival and you're looking over someone's shoulder, you know, not not too voyeuristically, but you kind of, as you're walking down the street, looking over someone's shoulder and they're on the site and they're going, oh, we want a chicken burger today. And, you know, they're scouring the options for, for lunch or mm. dinner that day. And I just think there's something really cool about that. And it gets so many people out. I know that groups travel from all around New Zealand to come for it, which is fantastic. There is a really great story about it for Wellington. It's a great match with beer. We've got a great partner in Garage Project who help us, and they brew some amazing beers for it every year. And, you know, it sort of speaks to the story of kind of the heart of Wellington hospitality, which is awesome. What is special yeah. about the Wellington food scene? What makes it unique? Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the perennial question, isn't it? But mm. I really do think it comes down to the sort of the collaboration. I mean, it's more than just the people, but it's the fact that the people are so willing to work so closely together, mm. and there's this vibe here. And I think it's about our geography. It's we've got this real heart in Wellington. We've got the hills wrapped around our city, particularly that just creates this sort of really tight knit community. Um, and you know, we've got people who obviously do amazing things with amazing local produce and, and produce from further afield which is available through all throughout New Zealand as well, but there is just something really cool about the hospitality here. And I actually think the other thing in Wellington, it's the longevity of some of our hospitality. Yeah, You know, we have restaurants in Wellington that have been open 30 years and not just one or two, but, you know, 10 or 15 mm. or even more. And there is something that is quite special about that. Yeah. It the just, it creates this sort of platform. That serious long-term player, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I don't, you know, and that is something that Wellington can kind of hold up and say, yeah, we've got that thing, you know, that sort of, that long-term game, and yeah. yeah, I think that's pretty special about Wellington. So, Sarah, think back to that first year of Wellington on a plate. Yeah, has yeah. Your, has your objective for the festival changed much from those early days? I don't think our core objective has actually altered that much, and our core objective is very much about you know, uplifting the Wellington hospitality sector mm. and um, and and really driving, helping them drive business at a traditionally quiet time of year. You know, I mean, fundamentally, that's what it's been all about and that hasn't changed. 
But I think probably around that, some things have changed because, you know, uh, th there is obviously a much, much stronger drive now around regionality and seasonality. Um, I mean, we started off right at the start talking about regional producers and suppliers, but, you know, we're really dedicated to that now um, and that seasonality message as well. So I think that probably has changed. And the other thing that has changed as well is that we do now have an international element to it because we also want to use it as an opportunity to share knowledge. So it's about bringing international chefs in to share their knowledge with chefs here, but actually also, and kind of secretly, my personal passion is actually share the knowledge of New Zealand food with international chefs and get them using our product and learning about New Zealand and learning about what's special about our country and taking that back to wherever they're from. And hopefully, you know, looking at using New Zealand products in their ongoing cuisine. I'm just uh, thinking if David Chang is um, on Instagram saying that he wants to come to New Zealand, you might mm. not have to spend so much money on flights next year. <laughs> that would be nice, wouldn't it? Yes, yes. <laughs> well, one less flight anyway. <laughs> well, if all the rest of them follow suit, we could have a really good lineup with no no hassles at indeed, all. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. Yeah, no, he could be a great ambassador. So, um, yeah, David, if you're listening, you know. How incredible was that, though, um, during the, the lockdown to see things like Massimo Bottura um, oh. with, the, with that ent entire focus on New Zealand I products. Know, I, I was know. so and proud. And I felt so, so did I, so, so I felt so proud watching it. And also for a man who's never stepped foot in our country, yeah. um, you know, he spoke with such passion and such commitment to those products. And, you know, he obviously does use some of them because mm. he spoke with he real knowledge. Yeah, and yeah. I thought to myself, I am just so upset that he can't turn around and, and jump on a plane and come to New Zealand and stand, you know, in the place where some of those products are from. Oh, it has And then to tell others yeah. to have that experience yeah. because that would be the ultimate to me um, is, you know, we want those guys talking about those products in their home country, but we want to bring them to New Zealand. It's so important, isn't it? Because you can't tell no, the story of place unless you're in that place. And we also struggle in New Zealand because, you know, we don't have a clearly defined food style, mm. you know, that we can't say that we invented, you know, curry. So, you know, people do struggle in telling that story because mm. our story mm. is a combination of things. It's about the people and the place and the product, yeah. you know, all in one place, all together. And, you know, meeting the people of New Zealand and, you know, our manakitanga, our hospitality is just such an important part of that on the land or by the river or on the sea where it's from, kind of in the environment is all part of it and I think you know that would just be the icing on the cake for someone like him. I hope that we'll get there it won't be through a lack of trying huh? No it certainly <laughs> won't be and I, I, I have to say <laughs> I've been knocking on some doors. <laughs> now listen if there was any food drink festival in the world um, that you could go to which which one would it be other than your own? Hmm, that's a very good question at the moment. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> yes. the lure of going overseas. <laughs> um I've been very lucky because I've been to quite a few food festivals yeah, that's um, what I overseas thought. and seen lots of different things. All that things. research. Yeah, no, I know. It's great. Is there any so that sort of hit you that like, oh, wow, they do this just so incredibly well? or not? So, well, it is a food festival. I, I really wanted to go to Food on the Edge this year yeah. in Ireland, in Me Galway. Too. And in fact, I was booked to go and I had my air tickets, mm. um, which um, thankfully got refunded. Um, I think that would be a really interesting event to go to because it's – based in a country about the same size as New Zealand. They've got very similar, um, actually very similar cuisine to New Zealand in many ways. Um, and they have similar challenges. You know, they're an island, sort of belted by cold winds on a regular occasion. And um, 
you know, and that sort of same connection to their land, a lot of farmers and growers. and I mean, that's more of a telling of the the food story yeah, rather than an is, event where yeah. everybody's going to, um, you know, be out in the paddock having a drink and a barbecue, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I've often heard, you know, you hear stories of um, slow food being quite amazing in Italy. Mm. Um, what would you compare Welly on a Plate to then? Like, would it be Melbourne food and wine? I mean, that's what we do compare it to, particularly to the Australian market to kind of give them context. Mm. Mm. But it is different as well. Yeah, that's probably our closest alignment um, because the, there aren't that many, you know, really significant multi-day events, you know, over a month, for example. There is a lot of festivals that might last three or four days or a week. Yeah, but nothing quite as long as Welling on a Plate. So I kind of think Melbourne probably is the closest. Yeah, and of course um, it's been very hard to watch. When you look at what's happened to Melbourne, you, you have to feel a little bit lucky yeah. to be here. Yeah, yeah, we do. We do. We think our lucky stars. Mm. Okay. Well, look, I know Beth's going to tell me all about the full highlights of the program, but anything – I know they're all your babies, but anything mm. that you are particularly excited about? Oh, actually, there's so many things I'm excited mm. about. There's some amazing pop-ups this year, I have to say. Um, I think the thing that's been really cool, our theme this year is Common Ground, and actually that was determined before COVID, which is kind of ironic because actually um, Common brown, Ground is all about celebrating you know, community in the heart of your yeah. place. And, and so it's actually a very fitting theme considering the sort of year we've had and um, people have really thought really hard about that and as a result have translated that into some really cool stories so there's a really strong element of Jewish storytelling this year through quite a number of events um, and people researching you know Sicilian cuisine and kind of quite rustic cultures and I'm quite excited about some of that stuff I think that'll be really 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 interesting mm, and, and and that is interesting because of course that's also so much about what the cuisine here is about is the absolutely the melting pot and the influences yep. that all immigrant of these culture chefs, yeah yeah, mm. yeah. Oh, so awesome. I think that will be really really fascinating I mean in terms of the event program look there's some absolutely stellar events on um, on the program lots of which sold out very very quickly the thing that I really love is actually going to the things that you don't know much about and you're really surprised by them. You're like, wow, that was really cool. And from Sarah Meagle, the woman behind Visa Wellington on a plate, to the woman in charge of putting together their massive program of events on offer this month, I asked program manager Beth Brash to give you her elevator pitch as to why you should eat, drink and be welly. So it's a month-long event uh, and... So everything from pop-ups, free talks, up to multi-course, um, crazy degustations, and then and everything in between. And then also running alongside that, you have Dine Wellington, which is uh, our festival dishes and fixed course menus. You've got Burger Wellington, which is just uh, the juggernaut uh, that is, uh, we've got 245 burgers this year. Wow. Then the kind of, Aperitif or digestif, the uh, cocktail Wellington, which that runs across the whole month as well. One of the things I love about it is you've got, you know, your high-end events, you've got your really casual stuff, but there really is, I mean, I know it sounds trite, but there is something for everyone and there's, mm. you know, stuff that costs you money and there's stuff that doesn't cost you money. It's, it's kind of a real all-rounder. Yeah, and it's really nice. Like, you can just dip in and dip out and I think, you know, definitely from the event side of things, I think, I mean, I was one of these people that, before working for the trust, I was there at midday, you know, when the tickets went on sale and my adrenaline is like running through me. 
you miss out on tickets or you may get that, that special one. But, um, you know, there's also people who it rolls around and they can just, you actually now, you can really feel the buzz in the city. And uh, it's just, yeah, it's really exciting. It's only really just hit home, I think. When I was there last year and I sort of rolled in, the, the taxi driver was telling me about all these things that were on. And I was like, my God, that's just so good. Even the cab drivers are into it. Yeah, it feels like the whole city gets on board. And I, um, it's hard to explain sometimes to people outside of uh, the city who haven't been here for it. But I would encourage anybody outside of Wellington to come down and just, you don't have to have booked any uh, event tickets or anything because you will just you will feel it and yeah, people talk about it. And, and even if you go into one restaurant, then they'll recommend another restaurant to go to. And it's, it's a, it's a really amazing vibe. Yeah, it is. It's really immersive experience. I, m- I remember sitting in the, um, the cocktail bar at the Intercontinental a couple of years ago and I was waiting for someone and I was just sitting there just listening to the conversations going on around me. And there was like a couple that had just been to a, a pop-up degustation and they were talking about that and someone else was showing someone the photos of the immense amount of burgers that they'd eaten their way through <laughs> in the last week and it was just like everyone was talking about Willie on a plate it was just so cool walking to work the other day and you just you catch these you you know you catch these conversations someone was like oh yeah that place was really you know like they were really famous for their burger last year mm-hmm. you know know what they're talking about so. <laughs> it's become a bit of a sort of um culinary reference point for yeah. Wellingtonians, yeah. I'm looking forward to the, the Speakers series. That's something that seems to have built over the years. It seems to be getting just bigger and bigger. Mm. This year, uh, more than ever, I'm just so excited about it. For, as you say before, where it's, it's just like there's so many ways to interact and I think a big thing is just having free uh, programming and um, the dream at the start of the year was that we would use our international um, talent, but we've almost done the opposite this year and gone we've sort of looked so much inward that it's all about Wellington's food story. And that came out of a, a conversation with uh, Liz Mellish. So she's uh, time to finish here. And we were talking about Masariki and she was just telling me all these amazing stories about the importance of food, you know, in our, in the Wellington Harbour. And, you know, if you go and go to Pipitea down where the um, railway station is, well, that's, Pippi, like you know, like you know, there's food in the name, and I mean, it just it just blew my mind, and so she's kicking it off. She's the first speaker, and I'm I just can't wait to um, hear more. And that that series is um, such a great thing as well because you've got so many experienced and knowledgeable people um, involved. In, in the festival and working in the hospo scene and, and, in, and in all of the other various layers that are associated with that. So that series kind of gives you an opportunity to really hear what these people know. Um, mm. And you don't normally get those stories, do you? You don't normally have a platform for sharing that sort of stuff. So it's so cool. Oh, and like, so the, the following week is this Wellington historian, Redmer. And, you know, I just kind of put a very vague, brief to him I mean it's sort of in his realm and I thought that I don't know he but he came back with this amazing story about Alexander Turnbull who has the library is the man behind the library from the Victorian era and turns out he was just like a sneaky coffee roaster and it's all his (laughs) story is about um yeah Alexander Turnbull and his like actual coffee um 
empire that he had. And, you know, there's just these stories that are, are around us that I guess when you find them out, you realise how they've paved the way for the city that we live in. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? And then the following week, you've got the 80s with Grant Allen and Martin Bosley and a host <laughs> of, like, iconic people that were... Yeah. I, I just can't... And, of course, me um, yeah. heading up the conversation. And, I mean, of course, I know absolutely nothing about what the scene was like then, so I'm really looking oh. forward to it. It's just going to be... I don't think I'll get no. a word in at all, actually. I think I'll just have to let them go, but, you know... It's yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there was that, that, again, like... That, I remember Martin telling me the story. He'll have to tell it, but there was, like, ride-on toilets involved. <laughs> From like you know those heady days of mm. the country, it is. I mean, it's amazing. I just, I'm just not sure whether everybody's dressing up. I'm not sure whether I should bring my hot pink lycra pants or not. <laughs> Always, Always. <laughs> I could probably still get one leg into them. Yeah. The other thing that that caught my eye the other day was actually there's some of these quirky little events that are on. Like oh, there's one where there's a chef pairing music and food. Or the musicians. I mean, some of those things are just, they sound so interesting. Yeah, there's a few sort of um, crossovers with art and and food and music and food this year. And that was like quite a late entry. Um, the, it's called A Sensory Adventure. Those are the kind of events that really excite me is these kind of quite out there events that, you know, you wouldn't normally see throughout the year. And, it, and it's just a chance for people to try something kind of quite new and quite different quite think that it's just not just sitting down and just having a meal is it it sort of it, it gives you an opportunity to think about food a little exactly. bit differently yeah 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 very cool normally a big focus for welly on a plate is obviously as you mentioned earlier the international talent that comes in and then they buddy up with local chefs so how did you find that this year once you had that we love that word pivot but once you had that big change around and obviously realized things weren't <laughs> going to be ever the same again. Do you think that made chefs and restaurateurs have to think a little bit harder about what their offering was going to be? No, I don't think so at all. I think, so obviously we lost about 20 um, of those international uh, chef events. Mm. But, you know, I mean, I think it felt appropriate for the time everyone wanted to sort of, you know, do local collabs. And so um, we opened up applications again and um yeah there was just there's some really great collabs and you know and so we've got Alex coming up from gatherings um James coming down from Bistronomy but you know even more again that sort of local thing I mean one of my favorites is there's a chef collaboration between Floridita's here in Wellington and then Dragons so the oh um, wow yeah and so there's this perfect idea of you know, like, I mean, really, those two are my go-to brunch spots, right? So mm, mm. this perfect kind of mashup of Wellington brunch, and I just think it's going to be fantastic. But you wouldn't sort of naturally put the two together, though, would you? Not at all. No. That's just so strange. Yeah, that's going to yeah. be so interesting. And yeah. I love the idea of that little microgreens thing with, uh, is it Garage Project? And they're sort of going yeah. into that urban place where they're growing all the little tiny yeah. herbs and having an event right in the middle of all of that. I think that just sounds so terrific what a, what a space yes. have you ever been down there it's like no I haven't seen it it's beautiful like it's kind of, they kind of have these sort of purple grow lights and then you've got and then with the green you know all the greens everywhere I mean it's just yeah, yeah. it feels of like a whole another planet it's incredible yeah, yeah. and this you know like you, it's amazing to see each year these kind of natural themes come out and one I mean one is sort of nostalgia and so there's lots of lovely um, so with Martin and Monique and we, mm. you talk 
before about grants, um, late 80s uh, meal, but um, Lower Stage is doing uh, a meal with Kelda up in uh, up at Rita. You know, just really lovely kind of homages to to kind of and also to paying to the people that drove the the food exactly, conversation. Yeah, yeah. And, and that lineage of of food, yeah. I think, is for me a really really interesting topic when you see it with with particularly like with Lois and then um, then with. Kelda's food, but also Mark Weir. He was training, uh, learning under her, and then um, yeah, same with Martin and Monique. So I just think that's so special. Yeah, yeah. I mean, food memories are something, aren't they? They're just they're so powerful. What's your strongest food memory? Yeah, my mum was so my parents. They lived on a kibbutz uh, in Israel before they had kids. And then they moved back to central Otago. So mum has always been this kind of, I don't know, she was just like so sort of open to food. And so, you know, she was making hummus before Lisa was. <laughs> <laughs> probably. <laughs> she probably, probably wasn't putting kumara and jalapenos in it either. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, she, but Lisa's a millionaire, so, you know. <laughs> But um, so lots of, yeah, just kind of interesting food. But also growing up in central Otago, um, we actually lived around pretty much in between two orchards. And so I can actually remember mum making apricot leather from the central Otago apricots and like and drying out on the tramp. (laughs) She was ahead of the trends then. Yeah, she's amazing. And I fully Mm. credit The, the kind of palette, this kind of. Yeah, a crazy palette that I found myself with. So, and the interest that you have—it's so exciting to see it all unfold. And as usual, there's just the you know the images and the videos and all that sort of thing that have been out in the lead up have looked so good and so collaborative and so creative. And it's um, we're all really excited about it. So I can't wait to get there. Oh, thanks, Kelly. It honestly feels like we've been in this like purgatory because <laughs> you know, typically it's in in August, and so I think. You know, like it, I honestly felt like I w- it was just always going to be just, it was like always going to happen, but we would never get there. You know, mm. like I just thought we'd be in this sort of purgatory forever. So it's an incredible feeling to actually see it all happen and touch wood. By this time next week, you'll be saying, oh God, I can't wait till the end of the month. I wish it was all <laughs> No, no, it's so fun. I mean, honestly, feels it almost feels like at this point you kind of, Hand the like hand the baton to the re- like the restaurant industry and and you know like they're at this point that you know they're just like going for it and it's just we're just yeah riding the wave it's very very exciting. Eat, drink, and be welly. Many thanks to Beth Brash and to Sarah Meekle. Visa Wellington on a Plate runs for the month of October with hundreds of venues right across the Greater Wellington region participating. And of course, along with all of the amazing eating and drinking, there's no denying that this festival builds a special spirit of collaboration, connection and recognition of our common ground. Hope I'll see you there. Follow us at Cuisine Magazine on social and head over to cuisine.co.nz for heaps of inspiration cuisine style. You can follow me at Kelly Brett, just make sure you spell Kelly with an I. And next up on Cuisine Bites, I'll take you back to the era that brought us such delicacies as lobster bisque, pasta primavera and veal masala. 
renowned New Zealand chef Martin Bosley and quintessential dinner party host and bad boy chef Grant Allen will join me and I can assure you this one will be highly seasoned. Convo you won't want to miss. Catch you then. And I believe that you've um, put out an invitation to David Chang to pop over and possibly take up oh, a gig. T- yeah, yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> he should. Um, he, um, uh, he, contribu- he generously contributed to my last book I wrote, The Recipe, which he provided a recipe for. And, uh, you know, he's, 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 been, he's been around the traps. He's a great chef. He should come to New Zealand, right? Might be an influx of uh, chefs wanting to come back to New Zealand, you know, and people wanting to come to New Zealand post post this whole bloody thing. So um, hopefully, you know, New Zealand is sitting in a reasonably good place. And it is, wouldn't that be lovely to see that all those chefs coming over here instead of all the chefs leaving here to go away to get recognised? A, a really nice turnaround, wouldn't it? I think so. Yeah. You know Kelly, right? <laughs>